This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Canada, we have Abraham Blondeau. Good day. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegal. Hi. On the ground, the humanitarian disaster unfolding in Ukraine really staggers the mind. Thousands of people have died. Thousands more have been injured. Some five million have fled the country. The cities lie in ruins. Prophetically speaking, however, perhaps the most significant outcome of the war is unfolding further west in European capitals, where to combat the threat posed by Russia, there are increasingly strident calls for European unification. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, this war with or Russia's war in Ukraine has coincided with the end of a big project designed to kind of map out a new future for the European Union. This was a big French initiative that was launched about a year ago. I think we probably talked about it on the show, uh, where there were 300 different proposals, uh, 40,000 entries from a multilingual debating platform. The idea here was to give citizens from all across Europe the chance to talk about what they would like from a redesigned European Union, a ramped up European Union. Uh, And so they've boiled down all of these proposals to to a set of initiatives, and they will be given to EU leaders uh, on May 9th, on this coming Monday. The end of this process, the submission of all of these proposals, uh, and the holding of this conference on the future of Europe with the public debates that have gone around that has prompted a lot of European news organizations to publish their pieces talking about uh, what Europe wants. And so, for example, the uh, Euractiv had one that was particularly noted, notable titled Time for the United States of Europe, which was an article signed by over 200 intellectuals and personalities of different political or- orientations from 20 European countries, as they put it. And this article says, we European citizens are scared by the return of war at the heart of Europe. The Russian invasion of Ukraine exposes the weaknesses and dependencies of the European Union and its member states. It went on to say Europe and especially Ukrainian citizens are suffering for the costs of non-Europe in the fields of energy, fiscal, foreign and defense policies. So uh, a lot of people looking at this and saying, well, we had this conference, we were calling for more Europe anyway, but what has happened in Ukraine has really showed us the urgency of this. We're scared by what's happening uh, and we think the future is or the solution is a European super state. I'm thinking of how many times Gerald Flurry has uh, referenced activities taking place in Russia, aggression on the part of Russia, creating this sense of fear and uh, impetus to act among uh, European peoples. It does seem like this Ukraine war has definitely increased that trend to a level that we haven't seen before. And there is this growing appetite among European peoples to uh, to band together. And uh, even the language that they're using, this is time for a united Europe. This really is something that um, is, is very significant when we look at this prophetically speaking. It is. 
you know, we come back so much on this show to to talk about these very specific Bible prophecies that that talk about Europe coming together. And Herbert W. Armstrong, you know, again, was very specific in, in Europe coming together because of these Bible prophecies. For example, in 1962, Mr. Armstrong wrote in The Plain Truth that the leaders of Western Europe do not feel sure that America would really act to protect them. They're suspicious of America. They would feel a lot safer if they themselves, by uniting, can be the strongest power, stronger than Russia, with their own nuclear deterrent. And that nuclear aspect is something is something we've seen a lot over the uh, the last few the last few weeks, with more and more news articles, especially from Germany, saying, "Well, we need to have a Europe that's a nuclear power, that's got its own nuclear um, defense, and and this kind of thing." So, uh, yeah, we're seeing it's a. Uh, it's a direct fulfillment of these of these prophecies. And Mr. Armstrong was making these prophecies based on chapters, scriptures like Revelation 17, uh, that talks about a, a this this beast power, as it calls this political power of ten kings that come together and they pool their their military might. They they give their power up into one central authority. That's exactly what these European leaders are talking about right now. Daniel 11 is a parallel scripture. You can slot so many of these scriptures together and it's clear they're talking about the same thing. And this, this scripture even talks about this European king of the north. Well, you're being worried, having tidings out of the east and out of the north. You know, it's worried about something that's happening on its eastern border. Uh, worried ultimately about news coming out of Russia. So you can see those trends are already moving forwards. So this... Uh, you know, this is a fantastic kind of he was right type subject. We have a booklet on all of that uh, you know, called He Was Right that goes through all of these Bible-based prophecies that Herbert W. Armstrong made and showed how many have already been fulfilled. And then that just boosts the confidence that we can have in, in Bible prophecy and that all of these events are playing out exactly the way that God said that they would. All right. Thank you very much for that, Richard. We will link to uh, that booklet. He was right. We also have an article up on the website right now by Daniel DeSanto uh, after the Russian invasion. Time for a United States of Europe. Go check that out at thetrumpet.com. The war in Ukraine is in its 10th week and the Ukrainians have put up a more rigorous fight than Russia expected. But if you're hoping that Vladimir Putin will back off or that he'll wind these operations down, the signs from Russia do not look promising. For this story, we'll go to Abraham Blondeau. Yeah, there are uh, multiple reports coming out of uh, Russia that Vladimir Putin may intend to uh, formally declare war on Ukraine. Now, Russia is already at war with Ukraine, but he's been calling it a special military operation. He hasn't declared war officially. Um, so by declaring war, that would just allow Putin to ramp up conscription, uh, mobilize the economy on a more of a war footing. And this would just indicate that Putin's going all in to subjugate Ukraine to the goals he wants to achieve there, even if it means uh, a long, drawn-out war of attrition. And uh, Robert Kelly at the website 1945 did an analysis on this, and it looks like that if Putin does declare war, it will probably fall on May 9th, uh, which is Victory in Europe Day. And this is a very significant uh, holiday for, for the Russian people because that's the day that uh, Nazi Germany surrendered. And uh, it's a huge victory for uh, the Soviet Union. And by Putin declaring war on that day on Ukraine in this ongoing conflict, it really links Putin and his vision, what he wants to achieve in Ukraine, to to the vision that Stalin had to those 
glory years, even though Stalin was uh, one of the most evil men to ever live, one of the worst mass murderers in history. Uh, a lot of Russians um, look back on Stalin as the golden age of Russia, and that's because he defeated uh, Adolf Hitler, and he he brought the Soviet Union to its zenith and power, even despite the massive sacrifices uh, that the Russian people made, despite his ruthless uh, rule and the millions of people that died. Um, they did win the war, and they were a powerful nation. Uh, so this really does. I think lend a lot of insight in what's going on there because it, as wars go on, it's hard to discern what's going on in day to day. But we know from what Trumpet editor in chief, Mr. Gerald Flory, has said about Putin and Ukraine and his goals there. Uh, with Bible prophecy, we know that Putin wants to get control of Ukraine and that Putin will grow in power out of this, despite the war in Ukraine not going as well as he initially thought. Um, so I think. When we look back on uh, what Stalin did, it really provides uh, the context because Stalin had to do a lot of pretty ruthless things, a lot of bloody wars, long drawn out wars like the one against Finland before World War II, for example, in order to, to get to where uh, he wanted to have that Soviet empire. Uh, so I think you really see Putin trying to link to that vision because it will just help him consolidate his power even more. We actually have a, an article by Jeremiah Jacques in the newest trumpet print edition, Putin's War on Russia, that talks about all of the measures that Putin has been taking within his own country that do have echoes of what Stalin has done. And Gerald Flurry has made these comparisons between Putin and Stalin for quite some time. I think a lot of people looking at the situation would probably view that as overblown, uh, an overblown comparison when you just look at the numbers uh, of, and the, the scale of the atrocities committed by, uh, by Stalin. What you're saying here, it kind of fits with this, uh, this picture that... Uh, uh, while Putin isn't committing those that scale of crimes, uh, it does seem that there's a certain romanticization of Putin's legacy and an effort to kind of rehabilitate him that is quite concerning. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of the Western media have been going on about how Putin may be toppled from power or he's sick or he's mentally deranged and all these sort of things. For sure, Putin is an evil man, but He's also a very calculating man, and uh, just just like Stalin was, uh, Stalin was a very evil man, but he was also a very skilled bureaucrat and a very skilled planner at getting what he what he wanted to be done at no matter the cost. And that's what we're seeing happen uh, with with Putin's Russia. He wants to rebuild the Soviet Empire. He said that's his his vision. Um, to do that, the, the, he will have to take some steps that will costs lots of lives, money, sacrifices of the Russian people. And he's willing to do that, just like Stalin was. And uh, Mr. Flory has said in, in the our booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, that Putin is evil on the same scale as, as uh, Joseph Stalin. And so the scale isn't there yet. Um, Bible prophecy suggests Putin will do much worse than Stalin did. But we're seeing that the same pattern of thinking, the same, the same methods being used. And so it, it gives us a picture of what we can expect moving forward, that uh, no matter what happens in the war in Ukraine, Putin will keep 
uh, sacrifice and keep moving forward to reach to secure Ukraine, no matter the cost uh, of men, equipment, supplies, because that's that's exactly how the Soviet Empire was built. And if that's what needs to be done to for Putin to uh, get a victory, then he's willing to to pay that in blood and treasure. It really is the picture in Bible prophecy that informs this view, uh, comparing uh, Vladimir Putin to Joseph Stalin uh, because of the prophecies that describe what this man will do, the man who fulfills this particular role in prophecy. Maybe you can just tell us, uh, uh, inform our listeners about that prophecy and uh, why Gerald Fleury has been putting such emphasis on that. Yes, yeah, in uh, Mr. Fleury, in, in the, the booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Rosh, points to prophecies in Ezekiel 37 and 38 about this prince of Russia. That booklet explains how that language is used in the Bible and how that uh, connects to Russia, how that is modern-day Russia uh, in more detail, uh, but that this prince of Russia ha- has a powerful empire, and it, it links to other Bible prophecies of what happens in the end time. Uh, we know that Bible prophecy points to the kings of the East. Not only will they have an economic uh, power, but also they'll be united. Uh, All the big Asian countries will be united. But the Bible points to one specific man leading them, and that's this Prince of Rosh, or this Prince of Russia. And this man will be leading that the kings of Asia, and they will, um, Bible prophecy shows that they'll be in a, a nuclear war with Europe, and that the worst suffering ever on the in in the history of mankind what the bible calls the great tribulation a lot of it will be perpetrated by the the kings of the east led by this prince of rosh uh so uh for to make that comparison between stalin and putin it is informed by bible prophecy because uh the bible indicates that these the kings of the east they will be a part of this this world war three that will actually do more damage, kill more people, be more destructive than World War II or any of these uh, regimes of of, uh, Hitler or Stalin. Well, we do uh, we do have that booklet by Gerald Flurry available on our website, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. We also have that article by Jeremiah Jacques in the newest trumpet print edition, Putin's War on Russia. Abraham has also written an article 100 years since Joseph Stalin rose to power, an article that reminds you of the legacy of this evil Russian dictator uh, that uh, is being somewhat rehabilitated in uh, in the eyes of Russians today. We thank you very much for that, Abraham, and please do go check out those those uh, resources on our website. We'll link to them in the show notes for today's program. Another horrific terrorist attack in Israel this week. To learn about this, we'll go to Brent Nachtigal. Yeah, it just seems like these are coming every single week, uh, and indeed they are. This was there was actually two attacks in the past week. This one that happened late yesterday. Um, this is just after celebrations of Israel's Independence Day, where Israel gets a day off, and it's a great celebration throughout the state of Israel. And I was actually attending a, uh, an event here in Jerusalem, but there was an event about 40 minutes away from here in the city of Al Ad. And there were three people killed by two terrorists wielding a knife and an axe 
and they came from the West Bank somehow. They well, they got through from the West Bank. These were two individuals that are actually that actually work in this city, and that's was what happens with a lot of Palestinians coming across from the West Bank into Israeli cities and working there and going back. Um, and this time they didn't go back and they decided to instead uh, kill three men, three men in their 40s, leaving 16 children without a father, without fathers, um, three of the men, the fathers of five and one of them, a father of six. And so Israel is, is kind of stunned by this because you have this, it's really this bizarre shift for these couple of days in Israel where you have the Memorial Day that takes place. And then as soon as that's over, the kind of the morning um, then you have Independence Day and this really joyous occasion. And then to mark the end of that with just this sober reminder that that Israel is still facing uh, a war, really, uh, really against um, Arabs that are increasingly hostile, it seems. Of course, we've seen this type of violence before, but not really for about um, 15, 20 years have we seen it been so quick, so deadly, and so repetitive over the past over the past five weeks. Um, earlier on in the week, there was a shooting in the West Bank town of Ariel, where two people were on duty. They were actually one was a fiance of the other, and the man dived in front of the woman, saved her from a bullet, and he ended up dying. So that was on Monday. So these are really attacks that are unprovoked. Um, this isn't the Israeli military going out to kill anybody. This is specific attacks by Arabs that are being motivated now to take uh, any chance they get, it seems. Obviously, not all Arabs are like this. The broad majority aren't like this. But there are increasingly amount, increasing amounts of Arabs that are being radicalized and that are are willing to put their life on the line. Now, these two, they're still out there. They're, there's a manhunt right now trying to find these killers. They've been named. We know who they are. Um, and the Israeli military and police forces are normally very good at hunting them down in the in the next couple of days. Um, however, it's very difficult, it seems, to stop these attacks um, because there's just so many Arabs that come from the West Bank to work in Israel for all the talk of how, you know, there's massive fence and et cetera. Indeed, there is. Um, but these people have no problem getting through and perpetrate these attacks and even work in Israel. And so when when lots of these workers and many of them have been over the, these attacks, six, seven attacks now in the past five weeks that have been deadly. Some of them are workers that normally work in Israel and Israel kind of turns a blind eye to it because they need the workers. And now these these are the individuals that are taking up arms in this case you know an axe uh against just just people this is an ultra orthodox community and so they have less weapons there uh which is probably the reason why these two terrorists were not shot on the scene um however it's hard to see how israel could shut down this type of violence uh going forward and and it doesn't look like it it'll it'll stop the rise in these kinds of attacks is just so so notable. It's so um, it's so stark because it, it does seem like for quite a long time we just weren't hearing this kind of news coming out of Israel, and now it's as you said, it's happening uh, every week or multiple times a week. Uh, help us to understand what is is uh, adding to this uh, increase in violence that we're seeing right now. You know, it is very hard to determine one single singular cause. Um, the Hamas leader, Yiwa Sinwa, from the Gaza Strip, he gave a speech on April 30th, and uh, he said this. He said, our people under occupation inside Israel in the Negev, the Galilee, Haifa, Jaffa, Akko, and Lod, whoever has a gun should prepare it. Whoever does not have a gun should prepare his cleaver. 
axe or knife. And he's claiming, that's what he said a few days ago. And, and he's out today claiming that these, these men celebrating what they did, saying that they took, took what he said to heart and they went and did their duty. And so you do have an increasing pressure, I think, and um, increasing encouragement from Hamas to go forward and perpetrate these attacks. We've talked about how Hamas is getting, is increasingly stronger. The Palestinian Authority is absolutely nowhere to be seen. They're meant to be the ones that millions and billions of dollars, Western money has propped up as being the only viable solution. And yet they have no hope. They have, they're, they're so corrupt that no Palestinian even trusts them. And so they, the, many of them are turning over to Hamas's leadership. And so you have that increased rhetoric. You also have, and we can't get away from this, just an American administration that is so pro-Palestinian um, that Mr. Flurry even wrote about when you had Biden come into office, I think we, he said, well, I think we're going to see a bunch of more Palestinian terrorist attacks. And that had happened because you, you see that the political support is um, on the side of the Palestinians. And this is a big deal to the Palestinians to have the political support of the United States that would justify these type of attacks. Of course, the United States isn't going to come out and praise it. Um, and yet this same day, it turns out that the President Biden and his staff has said that Israel, you need to stop all construction in, in, the, West, in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, where you have hundreds of thousands of your people, um, which is a disputed territory by international law, not necessarily illegal occupation. And they said, you can't even expand. You, you, you can't have your son live in the same community as you because you're not allowed to build a house there. Um, and that comes out today. And, you know, Israel is just up in arms about that. I have one quote from just a human rights, a famous human rights lawyer uh, here in Israel. He this he's just tweeting. And this this type of this type of speech from Israelis is, is becoming louder and louder. He said, how about instead the Biden administration just tell the Palestinians not to hack any more Israelis to death with axes? This is how stark it is. You don't have the resounding um, uh, you know, favor shown to Israel's ally. Um, instead, you have this, well, Israel shouldn't be building in the West Bank. Somehow justifying, you know, no one's justifying, they won't say they're justifying attacks. But they're not saying that, Israel, you go ahead and build there now because, you know, they're not showing themselves a partner for peace. It's it's very much that the Palestinians, I believe, and their leadership believe that they have the ear of this administration. Indeed, they do. And so, I mean, there is a connection between that uh, that political situation as well as um, the attacks uh, that we're seeing. You mentioned this is uh, just the importance of watching this very closely, um, looking at this prophetically. First of all, why is this so critical that we keep our eyes on this? And where would you send people for more information about these prophecies? Well, I think people need to to read Mr. Flurry's book, Jerusalem in Prophecy. It's, it's broader than just terrorist attacks, um, this book. And it gives you and it gives Israelis, I believe, um, a hope in a hope in seeing these these attacks. These are going to in, in continue. These are going to increase. Um, the pro- prophecies indicate that the the Palestinians are going to fight, um, backed by Iran, to take over more land and to, as we talked about last week, even even use the. Um, uh, even use the Temple Temple Mount as a, as a, a way of mustering its forces uh, against the Jewish state. And so 
as violence increases and as Israel is suffering these attacks and is not spoken about by the international community as being a victim, but rather they're bringing it on themselves. I mean, these are these are historic dangers, uh, I think, that show the times that we're in li- living in, where you have the Jewish state that, you know, is, is increasingly becoming... Um, where people accept violence against the Jewish state like this more and more and justify it. And I think if Israelis or, or even a lot of uh, friends of Israelis around the world want to, want to actually see why this is happening, Jerusalem Prophecy is, is the book to read. It also shows that culminating the violence, as even our other, um, other uh, contributors here have discussed, this violence of Jerusalem is very specifically prophesied as something that, that is going to announce how close we are to Jesus Christ's return as well. All right. Thank you very much, Brent. Big news this week in America. An unprecedented leak from the Supreme Court revealed the court's intent to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, legitimizing abortion nationwide. But as Stephen Flurry has been covering all week on the Trumpet Daily, this revelation and its timing were deliberately planned to cover up far bigger news. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, Tuesday was a huge day in American history because at first you had this documentary uh, released by Dinesh D'Souza, 2,000 Mules, that between video evidence and geo-tracking evidence pretty well conclusively proves that there were 400,000 uh, illegal ballots cast in um, a half a dozen swing cities, enough to uh, tip the election from Biden to Trump, not only uh, or actually vice versa, to steal the election from Trump and give it to Biden, not only in those six cities, but in those six states where those cities are located. Uh, so basically proving the election was uh, was stolen. So, I mean, that would have been big news in, in and of itself. But within minutes of the, the documentary released, you had the other piece of really big news this week is that for the first time in American history, uh, a draft majority opinion from the Supreme Court leaked out. They've had uh, they've had leaks before, like gossip leaks, like, well, we think the court's going to do this or we think the court's going to do that. But they've never actually had a whole draft uh, written by a justice leak before. And, uh, and not on a minor court case either. This was uh, this draft was from Samuel Alito basically proving that like five of the nine justices are are leaning strongly towards overturning the Roe versus Wade uh, court decision from 1973 uh, that made abortion a federal right uh, and throwing that back to the that decision back to the states so uh, a huge leak on one of the biggest court cases in American history and like you pointed out earlier uh, the, the timing couldn't be more uh, <laughs> more suspicious because uh, Samuel Alito actually he he wrote this draft on February 10th so about uh, yeah about two months ago uh, and the uh, the court was not scheduled to rule on this officially till later this year probably two months from now and so whoever leaked this draft had uh, a four-month window to decide when when do we want to leak this uh, and then decided to leak it the day before this documentary proving election fraud uh, came out. Well, actually, it was it was the very night uh, that it was first uh, it was first broadcast. 
Yeah, well, Politico published it the the night it was broadcast, but the uh, wh- whoever on the Supreme Court handed it over to Politico did it a day earlier. Politico had it for about twenty four hours before they uh, before they published the article, alerting the people. So I guess the the public found out about the leak right within minutes of that debut of that documentary. Uh, but the leaker the leaker made sure that the political journalist had twenty four hours to get it written up before. Um, before they came out they're actually still still looking for the leaker there's probably only 63 choices those uh those drafts are pretty uh are pretty under wraps it's normally just the nine justices themselves and then about their 54 uh law clerks uh and so a huge uh huge scandal even within the court because i mean that's definitely the now you're to the point where like even on the supreme court the justices and their staff don't trust each other uh, because, like Sid said, said one of them, one of them, one of the law clerks, or conceivably even a justice themselves, uh, got this to the press uh, in a very strategic, <laughs> in a very strategically timed leak to make sure that we've got uh, wall-to-wall coverage of the Supreme Court leak, which is a huge story uh, in its own right. But uh, if it wouldn't have been leaked <laughs> that day, you'd be hearing a lot more about the election fraud. Yeah, you would think. I, I, I think Stephen uh, Fleury has just done a, a great job of keeping his eyes on the ball on this, uh, on the real, uh, the truth of this story all week on the Trumpet Daily. I would highly recommend that people go and listen to uh, those programs. He also talked about this in his uh, Trumpet brief that was published on Tuesday, Supreme Court leak distraction from the stolen election. But this is... Uh, really information in this documentary that should be huge news uh, that there there should be a whole lot more interest on the part of officials, law enforcement, congressional leaders, uh, uh, you know, people in government who who really do. Uh, I mean, everybody should be interested in preserving the election integrity in the United States of America. But it, it truly is remarkable just how little interest there is on the part of people who could do something about this. Uh, meanwhile, as he's brought out on his radio programs this week or on his on on the Trumpet Daily, uh, these theaters are being packed uh, with a lot of people who uh, are vocally supportive of what they're seeing on the screen. They're gasping at the revelations that they're seeing uncovered in this video. And, and you can just see uh, the timing of this leak being uh, a deliberate effort to just basically shut all of this up, distract people away from it, and continue this uh, this idea that we all just need to move on from this. Right, and the uh, the evidence is is shocking. Like I said, most a lot of states you ballot harvesting's illegal. You just have to cast your own ballot. Some states let you take maybe two or three other ballots from like a relative who is a shut in, and cast maybe three. But I mean, you, you look at this documentary, and I mean, you've got video evidence of uh, people at three in the morning wearing surgical gloves, fanning out fifteen ballots. Uh, taking a picture of them, uh, presumably so they can get paid for what they just did, and then putting it in a drop box. And uh, I know, yeah, Dinesh D'Souza, he gave a follow-up interview with uh, the uh, Epic Times after he, he did this, where he basically saying quantified that, like I said, the thing's titled 2,000 Mules because they found 2,000 of these people. Uh, but they, uh, when you look at the number of ballots they were carrying, it's like 400,000 mm-hmm. ballots, almost almost half a million 
uh, ballots. In a very small sample size. In a very small sample size. And like I said, even he's saying that, yeah, you've got two, <laughs> two big revelations. One, because the sample size is so small, you're like, well, how many other like ballots? If this sample size is representative, there could be millions mm-hmm. of ballots. But, but even if that's not true, because these, uh, these cities that they examined were such, such swing districts, um, just the 400,000 itself could have yep. tipped the election. It was like they, you look at like Atlanta, like Georgia, Biden won that state by less than 12,000 votes. Right. So right. Uh, it didn't take, but I just say, yeah, yeah, just 200 mules in Atlanta could, uh, could easily 15 a piece or, or a little more than that, mm-hmm. uh, make some big differences. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Fleury also just brings out uh, how the outrage from the left over this uh, this decision by the court, which hasn't even been made yet. It'll be this summer, presumably, uh, that they would overturn Roe v. Wade. This just kicks the matter back to the courts. It undoes some uh, unconstitutional court decision uh, and it kicks the decision back to uh, to the states and most states, uh, the vast majority of states in America still have uh, protections for uh, women who want to receive abortions. So this is not the, uh, I mean, they're, they're trying to turn this into uh, just the, an excuse to delegitimize the Supreme Court, to pack it with uh, more liberals, uh, you know, expand the number of justices on the court and do other things that really are just radical changes to, uh, to the United States and the way that the United States is governed. There's no, uh, no regard for the rule of law, no regard for what it does when we uh, basically undermine the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the eyes of the populace. You have uh, leftists who are openly calling for revolt on the streets. Uh, All of this is just stunning uh, how they are just blowing this so far out of proportion for their political purposes uh, and quite, quite disgusting. But listen to uh, Stephen Fleury talking about this. I think it's, it's well worth your time uh, to get an idea of just how active the left is in uh, trying to push their agenda on this country. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up, a look at some causes of the supply chain problems that are hurting the global economy, the rise in popularity of Sinn Féin, the former political wing of the Irish Republic, Republican Army, Israel's deep alarm over Iran's nuclear program, and a push for a corporate boycott of free speech on Twitter. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The Week in Review. Just about every aspect of our lives is being affected by supply chain problems. It's causing shipping delays, rising prices, shortages of many products. It's grinding the gears of our global economy. And several factors are contributing. To learn about this, we'll go back to Abraham Blondeau. Yeah, the uh, lockdown Shanghai and the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, seem to be really exacerbating those supply chain problems. Um, Reuters just did a a report on some of the issues that are coming up. And I think this really highlights some of the the problems, ongoing problems that we're going to see for the uh, foreseeable future. And that this kind of disruption is probably the new normal for our supply chain. 
Um, so uh, RBC, uh, Royal Bank of Canada, they found that one-fifth of global container ship fleet was stuck in, in congestion at major ports. So that's 20% of the whole global container fleet. It isn't ferrying goods between nations. They're idle, sitting in ports, waiting to be offloaded or reloaded with uh, containers. In Shanghai, where the lockdown is still going on, there are currently 344 ships there. So that's a 34% increase in the past month of the the ships waiting to be offloaded. Um, and Shanghai's that's one of the busiest ports in the world, especially for ferrying uh, trade between China and the United States. Uh, when I worked in the logistics field in our fulfillment warehouses, uh, most of our uh, most of the stuff you buy on online uh, websites they come from China. So this this is uh, causing delays up to seventy four days. Uh, so this is we're going to see this disruption um, affect the consumers in uh, a month or two. It's going to keep compounding and and backing up supply chains everywhere. This is even affecting Europe too, because as uh, this empty storage containers, there's a finite amount of them on the earth. So uh, the more they're are, uh, stuck in China, they can't be used to take goods from Europe to America or, or vice versa. So uh, it's affecting ports all over the world. Um, the other side of this is with the invasion of Ukraine. Um, a lot of uh, insurers are jacking up their rates on um, the insurance premiums on ships, uh, going up uh, several percentage points, which just makes it extremely expensive to, to keep global trade going. And on top of that, you have marine fuel prices. So Singapore is the biggest refueling port in the world. Their prices for refilling ships, the, the fuel prices have jumped 66% this past year. So all those price increases are going to get passed on to the consumer as these companies try to make up their profit. But besides the impact on the individual, the, the bigger scope of this is that um, these are inadvertent uh, impacts of like lockdowns, the war in Ukraine. They're not actively attacking United States trade, but they already have a massive effect on our supply chain. It really shows how dependent Western supply chain is on foreign nations, on foreign infrastructure. Um, so when there is an economic siege, when these nations do start to uh, deliberately try to harm US trade, we can already see they can have a, a devastating uh, effect on it. Yeah, that, the, it really is uh, stunning when you have uh, these uh, events that are taking place all the way on the other side of the world, and you're seeing, uh, you know, problems that are arising in your own neighborhood, just showing how interdependent the global economy has become. And what's interesting about that is you look at Bible prophecy, and it makes some pretty, uh, pretty explicit. Uh, forecasts about how this is exactly the type of thing that will lead to major disruptions globally that you could see uh, this this economic interdependence being a major tool that ends up taking down uh the modern nations of israel the united states and britain included yeah exactly i think this is just really showing how vulnerable we are and how these bible prophecies um how I guess easy it is for them to be fulfilled in a sense, because like you mentioned, Isaiah 23, it talks about a mart of nations uh, centered on Europe and Asia. 
including uh, a South American component uh, that will uh, deliberately lay an economic siege on the United States and, and Britain. Um, there are other prophecies in Deuteronomy 28 and others that, that talk about a siege on our modern nations. Um, so when these, all of our important infrastructure, a lot of it we've, um, we've allowed these other powers to take control of it. That includes the merchant marine fleets, the like the refueling infrastructure for for being able to have a large uh, overseas trade, uh, even um, taking all of our uh, industry and putting it in other countries. Uh, so we're reliant on imports over exports. Like I think the United States has a record uh, import to export uh, ratio this year, uh, where we just have massive imbalance with Chinese to uh, American trade. So all these things, you can really see how once these nations turn on America, it is a, a huge Achilles heel we have, one of many, but where they can really uh, stop trade, stop a lot of our essential goods and services, even our food supply. And it can really tie into these terrible Bible prophecies that are um, that talk about this initial attack on the United States and Britain that is an economic siege. Trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques wrote a, a- pretty major feature article about this very subject uh, in our July 2019 edition, Blocking the U.S. Out of World Trade, that explains this prophecy that Abraham was just describing. I would really encourage you to go there and read that article. We'll link to it in the show notes for today's program, and uh, we'll definitely keep our eyes on uh, the development of how these disruptions to uh, global supply chains uh, affect our lives. Thank you very much for that, Abraham. Now to Ireland, where elections are about to take place, and a remarkable political trend that could affect the results of this election. We will go back now for this to Richard Palmer. Yes, local elections took place all across the UK yesterday, and uh, you know the newspapers have been full of all of the different results, what they say about the Conservative Party, the Labour Party. I think nobody's particularly pleased with their results, but some of the most significant ones seem like they could come from Ireland. The vote counting is underway now. We should get the the full results released, uh, maybe even around the time that this this show airs uh, or shortly afterwards. But early indications are that this is that this could be a pretty milestone event and that Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA terrorist group, and really this whole idea of a terrorist group having a political wing that's not a terrorist group is a load of rubbish. Mm-hmm. Sinn Féin are terrorists in my book. Uh, this terrorist group looks like they could be the largest political party in Northern Ireland, which is uh, unprecedented. This hasn't happened in the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, before the the whoever comes first in this vote or you know, whichever is the largest political party they get to name the or they, they get to be the uh, the head of the northern ireland assembly so we're looking at Sinn fein um they're going to claim the post of first minister for northern ireland for the first time ever now this is happening uh bec- more because of a divide in the unionist parties necessarily uh, so they're expected to get somewhere around 26, 27 percent of the vote, while you have two different unionist parties that want to maintain the union with the United Kingdom uh, at around 18 percent. But it's still a, a milestone event, and it's an event that moves Northern Ireland 
closer towards having a border pole, closer towards uh, having Northern Ireland uh, kind of unify with the Republic of Ireland and leave the United Kingdom. And there's a lot of fear that, that this result, if it does indeed turn out that way, uh, could be another s step on the road to that of outcome. I remember years ago in uh, the trumpet, Ron Fraser writing about this this very subject, and it's been a long time since we heard about Sinn Féin. Uh, how does what he was writing back, I'm thinking uh, 15, 20 years ago, hold up against uh, what we're seeing happening there right now? Yeah, very well. I'll read you some quotes in just a minute. But uh, this is... You know, this, is, this is a story that's been out of the press. It's important to note that it's not a story that's necessarily gone away. There is a pretty surprising level of violence that is still ongoing in Northern Ireland. Uh, but since the, the Good Friday Agreement and those kind of quote-unquote peace treaties, uh, yes, it's gone down a certain uh, uh, compared to what it was, and then the media just doesn't it doesn't report on it much outside of Northern Ireland. And unless you're one of the relatively few people in the UK that live in Northern Ireland or live in in the Republic in the border area, uh, you generally don't see very much about this at all, even though the the story is still festering. But uh, Mr. Fraser wrote after the Good Friday Agreement, the plain fact is that given a few years, the Protestant majority in Ulster will be overwhelmed by the much more rapidly reproducing Catholic minority. It is simply a matter of time. The Catholic nationalists will simply populate the Ulster Irish out of existence as a province separate from the rest of Ireland. And some of those demographic trends are indeed what is behind the result mm. that we're seeing today. And ultimately, Mr. Fraser was basing his forecasts on Mr. Armstrong's book, The United States in Prophecy, Britain in Prophecy, which is based on the Bible, you know, that uh, the Bible tells us that Britain is being cursed, that, you know, when Britain and we, we're coming up with these solutions like the Good Friday Agreement without God, and we're kind of claiming that, well, these are solved our problems when we're doing it in our own way and in a way that that gives in to terrorists, for example, rather than actually dealing with the problem, we can know that they're not going to work. This is kind of what it looks like when when God is cursing us instead of blessing us, as we have these solutions that, that, that appear solutions, uh, but just kick the can down the road. This one turned out to kick the can maybe two, three decades down mm. the road, but it hasn't. it ultimately hasn't dealt with that problem. And Mr. Fraser talks about this uh, a lot more. He has an article, probably his the, the most recent one was from, from 2007 called From Terrorists to Politicians that can give you a good summary of, of this story. All right. Thank you very much for that, Richard. Uh, the international community seems to be just fine with Iran becoming a nuclear power. How do ordinary Israelis feel about this? A recent Jewish news syndicate column answers for this. We'll go back to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, I've been talking about Iran's nuclear program for many years now, I think, and increasingly every week it seems there's something new that's happened. I don't really want to necessarily talk about something new that's happened, but just remind everybody at, at the reality of the world that we live in um, now that Iran is just a few weeks away from having, if they choose to, enough nuclear material for a nuclear weapon. Now that it has uh, nuclear uh, ballistic missiles to reach anywhere in Europe if it wants to, and it's developing, developing them to reach the United States. Um, Israelis are now, as according to this JNS piece, getting to the point where they recognize that the world is not going to support them in a in a preemptive strike on Iran. And so they kind of have to face this choice that they've faced previously. In, in 1967, of course, the Six-Day War with the Arab armies massing, 
and to much disapproval of the rest of the world, Israel decided, well, we have to do a preemptive strike on, on Egypt, take out their air force to even hope of surviving. And they did. And the Six-Day War was a resounding success. Of course, God was backing them in that. In 1973, for the Yom Kippur War, you had similar um, signs of aggression from the Arabs, and yet you had a Secretary of State in the United States that said, there is no way that you should preemptively strike. And Golda Meir says, um, we can't do it. If we preemptively strike, we're not going to have the backing of the world. And so Israel loses 10,000 people akin to America using losing a million people um, by their population. And so right now, Israel is is kind of at that point what best case scenario if the nuclear deal goes through and Iran gets access to billions and billions of dollars, they can use that money for conventional warfare. But then they only have a few years before they can get a, a legitimate nuclear, um, a nuclear weapon. If the if the nuclear deal fails, then Iran technically could race to the bomb in a couple of weeks. And so this is the reality of our world. And Israel is sizing up their options right now. Do, we, do they upset their number one ally like they did in 1967 um, and go ahead and strike Iran preemptively? And the world at this point, since they're so blind to everything, they would say, what in the world? Israel's mm -hmm. provoking war. Yeah. When they are on in the face of a, the fanatical regime in Iran getting a hold of nuclear weapons. And I think Israel right now, if they had the backing of the United States, I think that they might go ahead and do a preemptive strike uh, like they did in Syria in 2007, like they did in Iraq in 1981 with their nuclear programs. It is that close in Iran. Of course, Iran is being protected um, by by the, this government in the United States uh, from any such action from Israel. But that that is the reality where we're at. Um, I think Mr. Flurry's book, uh, Nuclear Armageddon is at the door, is just a really good wake-up call for everybody um, to recognize that though things might be peaceful in your backyard, um, there are world powers with nuclear weapons. And if you're talking about Iran, they are willing to use them if they get them. All right. Thank you very much, Brent. One last story. Elon Musk purchasing Twitter has really set the radical left on fire. One group is actually pressuring advertisers to boycott the social media platform if it stops censoring certain information. For this, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, when Musk first made the offer to buy Twitter, the uh, the board was seemingly to do everything in their power to stop the purchase from happening with their poison pill strategy and uh, and other schemes. Musk finally made them an an offer they they just couldn't refuse, and it looks like he will officially take over, uh, probably about six months from now. But uh, but that hasn't stopping the 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 radicals from going to Plan B, which is if they uh. If they can't stop the purchase, it's basically destroy destroy Twitter as a company, and so now their their strategy is to try to get all the corporate advertising pulled from it, like Coca Cola, Kraft, the the big companies, uh, and to uh, to spearhead this, the group Media Matters for America, which was uh, one of the major um, organizations organizing both of. Uh, Obama's presidential campaigns uh, has put together a letter and gotten 26 NGOs and other organizations to sign it. I'll just give you a, a sample from the letter. I guess, well, here's how it ends. 
It says, under Musk management, Twitter risk becoming a cesspool of misinformation with your brand attached, polluting our information ecosystem at a time when trust in institutions and news media is already at an all-time low. Your advertisement dollars can either fund Musk's vanity project or hold him to account. We call on you to demand Musk uphold these basic standards of community trust and safety and to pull your advertising spending from Twitter if they are not. And so uh, Musk Musk responded to this letter with a fairly simple statement: "Is like who's funding you?" Uh, mm. And I guess there've been uh, there've been some other people who've helpfully <laughs> come in and, and looked at that. I mean, it's signed by twenty six um, organizations. It's like Access Now, Accountability Tax, Black Lives Matter, uh, Glad, Global Projects Against <clears throat> Hate and Extremism. But when you uh, when you trace them back to actually like who's funding these. Uh, it's primarily NGOs run by uh, former Clinton and Obama administration alumni and George Soros's uh, Open Society Foundation. Hmm. I think there's probably some European Union governments uh, that fund some of these organizations as well. But that seems to be it gets back to uh, Clinton, uh, Obama, George Soros, and the European Union, which are the usual suspects when it comes to... Uh, when it comes to censoring free speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Obama just keeps on coming up in these uh, these kinds of initiatives, doesn't he? Yeah, actually the tablet, um, it wasn't by Lee Smith. I normally go to the tablet to read Lee Smith stuff. It was by someone else, but they actually had an article titled Elon v. Obama. Uh, basically, point out, because Obama has given, I think, three big speeches in the past two months calling for more regulation of the tech industry. Um, and what's on there, and and, uh, and and Elon Musk uh, is trying to actually get more free speech in the tax industry. So those two figures, Elon Musk and Obama, are, are like right now they're kind of like the public face of free speech versus censorship. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so, yeah. If you read um, our editor in chief's book, like America Under Attack, I mean, they'll have all sorts of information about. Uh, how Obama's an end time Antiochus prophesied uh, in the both the book of Daniel and the book of Second Kings, um, kind of putting that in prophetic context. But you are seeing more and more where I think uh, two years ago he was one of the only people talking about Obama kind of being the mastermind behind the scenes. We are seeing more and more where people realizing that uh, this push to uh, rig our elections and to censor our free speech is is being headed up by. Uh, Barack Obama. He's obviously in this case using <laughs> using some other people's money, like George Soros and and that. But uh, as far as the one who's actually getting up uh, at Stanford University or on the Atlantic and explaining to the American people why free speech is a bad thing, that Obama is the public face of that campaign. We uh, also have an article that Andrew Miller wrote in our. February 2021 edition, the biggest threat to American democracy about how tech giants are censoring what you watch and read. Uh, Go check that out, as well as the booklet America Under Attack. And again, you can look forward to the vastly updated and expanded version of that book coming out 
this summer. Thank you very much, Andrew. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Andrew Miller, Abraham Blondeau, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Will Durant. Barbarism is always around civilization, amid it and beneath it, ready to engulf it. Barbarism is like the jungle. It never admits its defeat. It waits patiently for centuries to recover the territory it has lost. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world